You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. We are in the third study in our series in the Gospel of John. We have uh, covered a a good amount of ground in the first two weeks, but we are in the first uh, major demonstration of what we began talking about uh, two weeks ago. And so this morning, I want to dive right in. I want to get right to talking about Jesus. In fact, more precisely, I want to brag about Jesus. Matt tells me all the time, hey, we need to spend more time talking about Jesus. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to brag about Jesus, so buckle up, Jack. Here we go. This is a lot of information about Jesus. By the way, it's the greatest topic we could spend any time on. Now, the passage we're going to discuss is a familiar passage, and so perhaps even that familiarity might breed a little bit of malaise. I don't want that to happen. I want us to approach this passage And not just talk about the text, I want us to talk about what is it that John, when he writes this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what is he wanting his readership to take away? And so my framework of sort of delivering this massively marvelous text goes very simply like this. Go, know, low. And that's our big idea for the morning. That's the whole idea. When we read this passage, I want us to take away, go, no, low. That's the framework. That's the punchline. I'm ruining the surprise. That's how I have all of this organized. So if you've got your Bibles, please go to the Gospel of John, and we'll begin reading in just a moment in chapter 2. Now, John is writing this Gospel as pure propaganda that you would be converted, that you would believe. The Gospel of Matthew is, Behold your King. The Gospel of Mark, Behold the Suffering Servant. The Gospel of Luke, Behold the Man. The Gospel of John, Behold your God. Unmistakably, the theme of the Gospel of John is so that you will believe that Jesus is, in fact, deity. In fact, he says as much in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John will tell you the whole reason he's written this Gospel down. John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31. He says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. A couple weeks ago, we began studying the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, the prologue, in which John sort of detonates a nuclear bomb. This great, tremendous claim that says Jesus is God. Not a superhero, not an angel. He is very God of very God. And that radiation, if you will, is supposed to go all the way through the entire gospel as you read it. Last week, we read verses 19 through 51 of chapter 1, and we saw Jesus calling to himself all of his uh, witnesses and disciples. And the final one that he calls is a guy named Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is told by Jesus, you will see more amazing things than this. You will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus says, I am Jacob's ladder. I am the bridge and the link between heaven and earth, between God and man, and you're going to see this. Now, with all of that as a backdrop, what do you suppose John's going to tell first? 
that try to continue to convince us that Jesus is God. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to read these first 11 verses, and then we'll unpack it. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. So what's going on here? Why is this the very first thing that John's going to tell us in his propaganda to convince us, to convert us, that Jesus is the Son of God? And again, the Son of God is the essence of God, not the child nor the offspring. It is God himself progressing, processing from the Father. What's the first thing John's going to say? Well, it's all going to begin in chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, John is a brilliant storyteller, a literary master writer. When John says the third day, he assumes and expects that you and I will have read this entire gospel in one sitting. And remember, chapter markers and verse markers are not inspired. Those are about 500 years old or so. This was written as one long continuous narrative. Last week, chapter 1, verses 19 through 51, we read a series of four days. On this day, the next day, the next day, the next day. And so John now says, on the third day. So this is the seventh day of Jesus stepping into his ministry. The seventh day. This is significant. John is telling us something really intentional. This is all about creation. This is about re-creation. Creation. You see, God in Genesis created in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. John's building that connective that any Hebrew hearer is going to read that and say, ooh, on the seventh day. This is the inauguration, the initiation of a redemptive re-creation. You might remember that at the very first creation, uh, immediately thereafter, there was a wedding, Adam and Eve. And soon thereafter, pretty much everything went straight to hell. But at this re-creation, there's also a wedding. And in this case, everything will progress straight toward heaven. John's going to tell us in this re-creation, this Son of God has come to redemptively recreate and unwind all the damage and destruction and depravity. There's also a wedding. And now the kingdom of heaven is going to break through and the gospel is going to go forth on the seventh day. Jesus arrives. And where does Jesus arrive? On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Ooh, this is about as sticky in the sticks as you can get. 
The people in Cana of Galilee were hillbillies. That was rural. They were country. They flossed with ski rope, y'all. It was rural, okay? This was pretty backwoods. And it is here in the middle of nowhere, not in Jerusalem, not at the temple, not with the learned Pharisees. It's in Galilee. Galilee was that place everybody wanted to be from, but not in If you have a son who shows any intellect at all, you're doing your best as soon as you can to find relatives or somebody else to whom you can send your son in Jerusalem so that he can get educated and get a better life than what you have up in Galilee. And it's into that context that Jesus is going to initiate and inaugurate his ministry. There's a wedding at Cana. We don't even know where Cana is. We've never found it archaeologically. It's just somewhere up in the northeast part of Israel. It's a backwater, insignificant nowhere. And the mother of Jesus was there. Interesting, uh, John will never refer to her as Mary. His entire gospel, he will never call her Mary. I don't know why exactly. I think it's out of respect for Jesus. But even at the cross, when Jesus says, behold, your mother, giving her essentially to John, he will still not refer to her by name, just the mother of Jesus. In other words, I take it that John rightly esteems Mary. I think sometimes we as Protestant evangelicals have taken it too far and we don't want to talk about Mary at all to our detriment. Mary deserves a lot of esteem and recognition. She is the principal exemplary woman in the New Testament. Well, Mary, our mother of Jesus is there. Verse two, Jesus was also invited to the wedding. Sidebar, always a good idea to invite Jesus to your wedding. Just gonna set that aside there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So, don't know whose wedding this is. Because of what will happen next, my sense is that this is someone known very well to, if not related to, both Mary and Jesus, particularly the groom. So then in verse 3, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. It's fascinating wording here. The wine runs out, but that's not what Mary says. Mary says they have no wine. Now, there is so much going on here. John is masterfully creating a narrative here. Wine is such a central symbol and a theme for all the nation of Israel throughout all of the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, one of the blessings that Jacob pronounces is that when Israel goes forth, the wine and the vine will be ripe and flowing. In the book of Deuteronomy, as God is pronouncing the covenant with Israel, he says, when you are faithful, when you walk with me in obedience, when you recognize me, I will provide plenty of prosperity and there will be bounty and blessing. There will be wine flowing in abundance. Until we get to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, there is bounty, there is blessing, there is plenty, there is prosperity, there is wine Now, God's already said, if you follow me, I will give blessing, there will be wine. If you do not, if you disobey, if you you depart from me, I will bring curse and there will be no wine. The rains will not come, the harvest will not come, and therefore you will have no wine. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, verses 11 to 16, we see that it is a time of prosperity, a time of plenty, a time of blessing, a time of bounty, and they have much wine. So what do the people of Israel do with all of this wine? They say, oh, praise be to God who has given us plenty, who has brought the fruit of the vine. Not so much. They get liquored up and forget him. They totally get trashed. 
They, in, they engage in every possible diversion they can muster with music and entertainment and wine. I know it's hard for you to imagine a society that cares more about their sensory pleasure than recognizing their God, but just use your imagination with me on this one. They are refusing to recognize that God is the giver of all bounty and blessing. And because of that, God says, you will go into exile. You will experience separation. You will experience other than what you were created for. And so the time of Jesus comes 700 years after Isaiah, and there is no wine in Israel. See, John's always going to make an immediate physical statement, and it's always going to have a higher spiritual truth. This is not allegory and some silliness that you have to try to figure out the secrets. John's going to make it clear later in the context what he's talking about. Because of the prophecy in Daniel, every single Jewish girl was hoping that she would bear the Messiah, and it's Mary. And Mary loves the Lord. Mary loves her country. And she recognizes that Israel has no wine. It is, a it is a season of curse. It is a season of occupation by Rome. It is a season of dryness. And she says there is no wine. Not that they have run out, although they had. There is no wine. She knows that this Jesus, her son, has the capacity to do something about it. Now, why is wine such a big deal? Well, Every time we're able to take a study tour to Israel, we use the same guide. His name was Ronan ben Moshe, joyous son of Moses. What a great name, right? And he always tells us the story of wine. One of the very first things we do on the first day is we go to a place where we see sort of a reconstructed um, uh, wine press where they actually would pick the grapes, put them in and press them. And there's a vault where they would store the wine. And he tells the story of wine in Israel. And he says, in ancient Israel... When a couple was married and they were able to conceive and they had a son, there was much rejoicing and thanksgiving. Not because girls were not valued per se, just not in the same way because the son was going to be the one that would carry on the family line, the heritage, the, the legacy, that would learn the family trade, that would take care of them when they were older. The son was going to be, like Psalm 127 says, a gift of the Lord that would, that would prolong the family's identity in the land. And so they would celebrate this was a blessing from the Lord. And the father would take wine that they would normally serve with meals, this very bright, sour, bitter, vinegary table wine, and he would put it in a barrel, and he would put it away in the vault, and he would store it there and just leave it there. This stuff was a vintage of mm, Thursday. It's not, it's not old, rich, del delicious. It's vinegary, sour, bright, and bitter. But he puts it in a barrel, and he stores it away. And then every year on or around that boy's birthday, he'll take another barrel of the standard table wine, he'll cap it, seal it, and he'll put it in the family vault. And he'll do this every year until such time as the man is ready to take for himself a wife. Now the man's probably going to wait till he's about 25, maybe 26 years old, at which time he's learned the family trade, he's responsible, and the family will go and find for him a bride, just like it should be today, incidentally. <laughs> the family will go and pick for him a bride, and they will have a great feast. This wedding in antiquity is a seven-day-long affair. It takes place on the Sabbath. Jesus loves to do his work on the Sabbath, incidentally. This wedding is a community-wide event, and it lasts for seven days. It is a massive, massive undertaking. Let's see what happens. Verse 3, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have 
no wine. So what's going on? This father will have put barrels of wine aside year after year after year. And at the beginning of the wedding feast, the master of the ceremony, who's kind of like uh, the wedding coordinator, the family has to do all of these things for seven days, and so they began to specialize, and they hired a master of the feast, the wedding coordinator. He would go to that oldest barrel of wine, and he would open it. Ah, this is no longer a bitter, sour, bright, vinegary table wine. Ah, this is, this is seasoned over 25 years. Now it's delicate and complex. Now it's like a, a rich Napa Cabernet. Now it's got some real complexity to it. And he would dip his cup into the wine and he would pull it out and he would smell it and he would show the guests, we will take part in this, and he would smell it again. And then he would drink and he would say, ah, what kind of a father must this be to provide such a delicious wine for this son of his, for these guests of his, for this family for this village what a great father this must be and they would proceed to drink that oldest 25 year old wine first and it was good and pretty soon they would go to the next barrel and pretty soon they'd go to the next barrel until they're about 24 barrels in and by this point they don't care what it tastes like the last barrel's bitter and bright and sour and vinegary again, but nobody cares. All their lips are numb. They're seeing quadruple vision. There's unicorns dancing by. Nobody cares. But these people go through it all. I'm telling you, these Galileans can party, y'all. They run out of wine. A tremendous humiliation. It will be an embarrassment to the groom's father. It'll be an embarrassment to the whole family. In fact, we know that in antiquity, if you were at a wedding feast and they ran out of wine, you could actually pursue legal action against the host family. So I'm just saying, you're going to invite me over? You better be stocked. You could provide legal action against them. And it was a huge embarrassment. So Mary says, we have an immediate familial crisis and we are in a time of national dryness. I need you to do something. So in verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, to our ears, that sounds kind of cold. Because I know in my house growing up, if I would have addressed my mom as woman, I would have been quickly on the floor. My dad would have inter intervened and it would have been all over for me. No, no, no. This is actually a, a kind term. It's, it's more like madam. And books and books and libraries are filled with people trying to explain what this interaction between Jesus and Mary is all about. Here's how the... I would say the most reliable commentators and the, the, the greatest weight of context in Scripture makes this pretty clear, what John is doing. When Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? First of all, he's calling her woman. Similar to what Jesus says to Mary Magdalene after the resurrection, woman. It's a king in a garden in that case. This case, it's a king at a wedding. And just like Adam names Eve, he says woman. But in this case, more specifically, more precisely, Jesus is speaking to Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, after the fall, Eve is told, you will have a seed that will come after you. And he will unwind all of this damage, all of this curse. Yes, there will be a serpent that will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And Jesus says, woman, I'm the seed. But Mary wants him to do something. She's trying to force his hand to reveal him as Messiah, and he's not ready yet. 
Jesus is saying, oh, this is not my time, not my hour. You will not tell me when to go. In fact, five times in the Gospel of John, this is not my hour, not my hour, not my hour, not my hour, not my hour. He'll tell people, you've seen this amazing sign after this amazing statement? Don't tell anybody. Why? Because he's not going to reveal himself as Messiah prematurely and derail the program of God of redemption. Until finally in John chapter 13, verse 1, it will say, when his hour had come. Twelve chapters of signs and statements, and then finally in chapter 13 it slows way down and it says his hour had come and he begins his march toward the cross. But he's not going to have Mary fast forward his program. He's not going to be revealed as Messiah just yet. And yet, watch what amazing things happen. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Most people take it, and I agree, this is Mary's confession of faith. I don't know how he's going to do it. I just know that he's good and that he can. People have asked, how does Mary know? Are you kidding me? How does Mary know? She knows he's Messiah. When an angel shows up and says, hey, I know you're 14 and a virgin, but the Holy Spirit's going to conceive, that's a tip off <laughs> that God's in this thing. And when you see your cousin Elizabeth and her baby leaps in the womb and she said, what does the mother of my Lord have to do with me? Elizabeth knows that Mary is burying the Messiah. The Messiah. That's a tip off. When they go to temple, they see Anna and Simeon. They said, this is the son of the Most High. When they lose him at 12 years old and he goes to the temple and he says, don't you know I have to be in my father's house? That's a tip-off. And oh, by the way, 30 years of utter, complete, and total sinlessness? That's divine. They never had to discipline this kid. His room was spotless. His screen time was limited. He was amazing. And every thought, word, and deed, he was sinless. Oh, Mary knows very well who he is. And he says, you will not force my hand. And she simply says, do whatever he says. When Mary is told by the angel, you will conceive by the Holy Spirit, she says, may the Lord do whatever he sees fit. It is her confession of faith. Now, verse six, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. I love this. Six stone jars for water. Why six? Well, this is not an accidental number, I take it. Six is the number of man. Six is the number of incompletion. These jars represent the Jewish law, the system of purification, the system of separation. Presumably these Jews have been out in the world, perhaps engaging in commerce and, and merchandising with the Gentiles, and they're defiled, they're ceremonially unclean. And so they have to come and get purified. They wash their hands, perhaps even their feet, these are also the same jars where dishes are getting cleaned. This water turns nasty. This water turns gross. No Jew would drink out of the wash basin, would you? People are washing their hands, their feet, the dishes. And there are six of them because it's the number of effort. The law has never been able to save a single human soul ever. And so there's only six, not seven. The water represents separation. There are those who can go through some steps and get closer to God and there are those who cannot. There are those who are clean. There are those who are not clean. There are those who have access to Yahweh. There are those who do not and never will. The waters of the purification represent separation. I think this is breathtakingly brilliant what Jesus does. Six of them. Why are there 20 to 30 gallons in each? I have no idea, but Google it. There's like a 7,000 theories and they're all probably wrong. I don't know why. I think it's interesting. It's a whole bunch is what I can tell you. Verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, 
fill the jars with water. So I take it they're not very full anymore. They've been splashed over, probably full of sludge. And Jesus says, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, to the very surface of the jars. This was going to be all Jesus. No human cunning, trickery, cleverness, or anything else. They would add nothing to the mix. Jesus would do the work only and ever all by himself. Verse 8, And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. We get no explanation. We get no detail of how this actually happens. Like did Jesus cross his arms and wiggle his nose? Like how did that actually occur? He thought it and it did. John's telling us something. He doesn't have to try hard. He is creator God. He is re-creator God. Verse 9, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. It's just, it just has happened. Transformation from one material to another. Not a reassembly, not a mixing. It is transformation from one substance into another. This is the gospel breaking forth. He did not know where it came from. Though, John adds, the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. <laughs> Interesting. Those who carry the message of transformation always know the source. The servants of the transforming power of Jesus always know the source. They're never confused because they've observed it themselves. I don't know what happens. Jesus says, fill it with water, and suddenly it's wine. And the servants were there, and it was wine. They knew what had happened. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Oh boy, how is this going to go? There is no wine. People are beginning to murmur, although in a slurred sort of murmur. They're murmuring, we have no wine. And the master of the feast, his job's on the line. And he calls the bridegroom. Ah, finally, we have wine. But what is this stuff going to taste like? It's going to taste like, who knows, like it came out of a pine saw container. Ugh. But he says to him in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Ah, but you have kept the good wine, the goodest wine until now. What's good wine? It's old wine. Jesus instantly makes old wine. Many take it and I agree. This is John's way of saying the old is surpassed. Judaism is no longer the faith narrative of the people of God. It has been eclipsed and fully realized and now released as Christianity. That is now the faith narrative of the people of God. It's a new season. It's a new age. An age of grace. An age of fellowship. Not of separation and legal stricture. It's changed. This, John says, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is what John wants you to know. This is how Jesus is going to manifest his glory by secretly transforming water into wine. Why is that? It's the gospel. It's a clear, compelling gospel. Jesus takes the religiosity of the day, the waters of purification and stricture and having to do all these legalistic, moralistic, behavioristic things, and he transforms it instantly by his power into wine. What is wine? It is the facilitator of fellowship. It is the fuel of friendship. It obliterates dividing walls. It eliminates any sort of, of distinction. It brings people together. I come from a Latin context. How can we possibly have fellowship and friendship if there's not a little bit of a vino between us? Huh? 
It's the same in the Middle East. It's the same pretty much everywhere except sometimes, you know, first Sunday of the month here at communion. We don't do it that way. But how can we possibly have fellowship without some sort of table to gather around? Jesus takes that which was the waters of separation and he breaks it down and he transforms it into the water, to the wine, sorry, of fellowship and of community. No more distinction. Years later, I take it, three years later at the cross, there will be some who are present at that wedding at Canaan and go, where have I seen this before? Oh, that's right at the wedding in Cana three years ago where he obliterates the dividing wall and the veil and the temple is torn from the top to the bottom. And there's access. You remember how the chapter one ends where Jesus tells Nathaniel, oh, you'll see more than this. You will see the bridge between heaven and earth, God and man linked. And I am that. Jesus obliterates any dividing wall, any, any barrier whatsoever by transforming the waters of separation into the wine of fellowship. It's a new age. Which brings us all the way back then to our three-pronged construct for the morning and how to frame this passage. And the first part goes like this. Go. Go. Because of what Jesus has done, there is no more any religiosity, any sort of need to bring people in and make them like us. That's not the point. Jesus is ushered in a new age, the, the gospel of wine and fellowship, meaning anything that had previously separated you and me, socioeconomic status, address, voting history, whatever it might be, is now obliterated. We have a great common denominator. We are to go, that is to walk across the room and have fellowship one with another. All summer long, we were begging people. We want you to know one another, to be known by one another, to go to Luby's and share a Luann platter, whatever it takes, to just walk across the room and go, to know and to be known, to go. But here's, here's what I know. I can challenge you and charge you to go, but you never will unless, number two, you know. You never will because you'll feel guilted. You'll, you'll feel obligated. You'll feel like it's your duty, like you should. And so you never will. I mean, do you know? Do you know Jesus? No, 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 no. Not know about Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Not a lot of information so that you could win Bible Jeopardy and really impress Alex Trebek. I mean, do you know this Jesus? What do you think about when you think about this Jesus? Do you think of that creepy Jesus who looks like he went to Cal Berkeley, has you know, blonde feathered hair and blue eyes and a narrow nose and a perfectly clipped beard and a toga and Birkenstock sandals and he always floats about two feet off the ground and he looks off into space all the time? Is that the Jesus you think about? Because that guy's not real. That guy's selling pencils at an airport in Denver. That guy's not real. He's not God, he's not savior. If that's what you think about when you think about Jesus, may God help us to rethink our thinking. What do you think about Jesus? Maybe you have spent enough time in church that you think, well, he's the, he's the second member of the Godhead Trinity, the vicarious penal substitutionary atonement for sin. Man, that's awesome, that's right. That's exactly right, but do you know Jesus? All throughout John's gospel, he's gonna say, these people did not know him. These people did not know him. Twice, John the Baptist said, man, I didn't know him, but now I do, I know him. What do you know about Jesus? What if I asked you to tell me about your kids? Could you brag about your kids? Of course you could. You've got the bumper sticker. I'm glad your kid's an honor student too. Yay. Could you brag about your spouse? Could you brag about your coworkers? Can you brag about Jesus? Can you brag about Jesus? What, what's your favorite story about him? What's the thing he did that made you go, oh, 
do you know this Jesus? I mean, do you think, <laughs> Jesus, he is everything I wish I could be, but I know that I'm not. I mean, this Jesus, he, he's the guy that everything he does, I say, man, I wish I would have done that. Everything he says, I think, man, I wish I could have said that. I wish I was the kind of person that would say those things, that would do those things. This Jesus, man, he's the kind of guy that makes me choke up every time I see his care and his compassion for people who do not deserve it. A woman who's, who bleeds for 12 years, and he loves her. The leader of the synagogue who was haughty, who had probably shamed him publicly prior, he takes mercy on him. He chokes me up. He gives me chill bumps when I think about what this Jesus does. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know that Moses, when he comes 1,500 years prior, goes to Egypt in judgment, and he turns water into blood? But Jesus, Jesus doesn't come in judgment. Oh, he will again later. But this first time, he doesn't come in judgment. He comes in blessing. He could have turned water to blood. They deserved it, and so do I. But instead, no, 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 this Jesus. Man, he turns it into wine against all expectation, against all hope. He turns water of separation, not into blood, into wine and says, come, 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 let's be together. Do you know this Jesus? Which brings me then to the third thing. If you know this Jesus we won't be able to stop you talking about him. Not that you'll have to, not that you're forced to, not that you should, but I won't be able to shut you up about it because he's your favorite, because you actually know him. But if you know him, then let me tell you this, you'll have to do the third thing, and that is to go low. You'll have to go low because that's what Jesus did. And disciples do what the master did. That's the whole point. Jesus became like that which he wanted to save. He humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. He stepped out of glory into whoa, this. Imagine the smells that Jesus had to endure. Are you kidding me with this? He became like this. He experienced lowering. I remember about 10, 12 years ago, somewhere around in there, there was a huge stink in Europe that ended up going kind of all over the world. Apparently, some Dutch cartoonist drew an unflattering picture of the Prophet Muhammad. And the entire Muslim world went absolutely crazy. And then all of these jihads were launched and, and called for and all these kinds of things. And people went crazy. It sprung out of Europe, went to the Middle East, started going around the world into Indonesia, South America, finally North America. And I happened to be talking to a guy about it who was not a Muslim, incidentally. He's also not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. And I said, gosh, it's such a bizarre deal. They get so upset about an unflattering cartoon of a prophet. And the guy said, whoa, hey, whoa, hey, you're, that's kind of insensitive. Like, I mean, th listen, th this, is, this is like their God. I said, mm, actually, no, but okay, what do you mean? He goes, well, I mean, seriously, how would you feel if someone did that and humiliated Jesus? And I was like, well, I'm sorry, wait, humiliated Jesus? So what do you think they did to Jesus? Do you know what happened to Jesus? He was like, well, you know, that whole like, cross thing. I was like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. They threw him in prison after a mock trial. They, they hired false witnesses to lie about him and they couldn't get their story right. They humiliated him. In the prison, they scourged him, flipping him front and back, ripping the flesh off of his body publicly. They humiliated him. They dressed him in stupid mocking clothes and marched him around as if he was their king, but he was not. They humiliated him. 
They pressed a crown of thorns into his scalp, into his face, and he bled. They humiliated him. And they spat on him. And they punched him in the face and they ripped out his beard and they said profane, vulgar things about the creator of the cosmos and they humiliated him. And then they stripped him naked and they hammered him to boards with spikes the size of my thumb and they hung him publicly for all to see and they humiliated him. Cartoons? That's your concern? Bring it on. We'll take cartoons. Humiliation? That's Jesus' whole bit. That's his thing. And if you serve a God that is so precious, he can't bear to be humiliated, perhaps he's not God at all. But if perhaps there is a God who is so great, he is willing to endure all of that for you, then I wonder, perhaps we ought to adopt the same mindset and go low, because he did. See, this Jesus, he, he's not just... Lord, although he is, he's not just Savior, although he is, he looked at me from before the foundations of the earth and he said, that guy is a cosmic loser and I love him. And he's done a ton of stuff wrong and he will do a ton of stuff wrong and I will never do a single thing wrong in thought, word, or deed, but I will die in his place because I think he's worth it. And then he died, suffering all that humiliation and then he rose again. And now what he wants more than anything else in addition to bringing glory to the Father, I get all that, is to spend time with me by his spirit and walk with me on a daily basis. Are you kidding me with that? And all I want to do is have a comfy life, leave me alone? No, no, no. We have to go, we have to know, we have to go low. See, it's problematic for a lot of us as American Western Christians. We wonder why more of our friends don't come to faith. It's because we come at it as American Christians, as Western mindset. We approach from a position of strength. And what we fear above all things is being rejected because we really don't know who and whose we are. And so we think we've got to articulate this sales pitch all at once in one sitting with four spiritual laws and the ABCs and the Roman road. And if you died tonight, would you choose smoking or not smoking? And then we're shocked when nobody goes to heaven. Like, what? I can't imagine why. It's because we believe that we must approach people with a power differential. I have to convince you. And I'm not gonna do it unless I'm sure that you're gonna be convinced. And so if I'm not sure, I'm not gonna have a conversation with you. But instead, look what Jesus does. He builds relationships with people. He never rushes it, he never hurries it. He lowers the power differential. I have found that when I've gone to people and I'm willing to say, hey, would you help me with this? I've been terrible at this, would you help me? And over a Long period of time, when I'm not trying to sell them, I lower the power differential, let them help me, love me, lead me, guide me, guard me, then conversations with me bragging about Jesus come out fluidly. Because then I can say, well, I'm such a great guy, I'm the sharpest knife in the drawer, and Jesus is lucky to have me on his team. No, I can say, see, I'm the biggest loser in the cosmos, and he loves me but I have to lower that power differential and make sure they understand that I am as weak as they are. You have to go low. Go, no, low. You see, this is the ministry of Jesus the Christ, the incarnation. This is precisely what he did, which is why I think perhaps the most emotional words I read in the Gospel of John is the way that John describes himself over and over. The disciple that Jesus loved. When you brag about this Jesus and you fully appropriate and internalize that he loves you, it'll change everything. So I wonder, 
Are you the disciple that Jesus loves? If you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, you know an awful lot about him, but you don't know him. You know that he was a good guy, nice teacher, swell rabbi, whatever, but you don't know him, I invite you to be known. Because John's trying to convince you, and we pray that if you don't know him, that this morning God will convert you. That you will believe against all understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I invite you to believe. Not to, not to understand every aspect. I certainly don't have it down. But I invite you to believe. And if you're here and you've been a believer for a long time, look at the disciples. They were believers. They believed in Jesus. They followed him. And then they see this, and they believed ever increasingly. They believed even more because they saw something of Jesus and they knew more of him. They loved him more. Their affection, their attention swelled. I invite you as well to move off of simply knowing a lot about him and move deeper and deeper and deeper into knowing him. He's the one that I wish I was so like and I'm not and he loves me anyway. That's the kind of Jesus I get to brag about. So I wonder, do you know him? Go! No, low. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for who you are, for what you have done, and who you have declared us to be. I pray, God, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that they would be known, that they would know you. Father, for the rest of us that have known you for a long time, I pray that you will ever increasingly expand our attention and our affection for you because you're worth that, that we won't need or have to talk about you but we want to because you are our favorite may it be god exactly as i have prayed or even better because you're good and we can trust you we pray all these things the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of jesus amen thanks again for listening to the podcast today we hope that you were blessed and encouraged and if you have any questions or comments we want you to let us know simply send your thoughts to questions at bethelbible.com Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.